I was about to start the sermon, then I realized I've got a little note here, don't forget to read the text. Let's start by reading the text. eh? You're going to Ezekiel, chapter 22. We're in the latter uh, uh, third, I think this is like the fifth sermon, fourth or fifth sermon I've done in Ezekiel 22, Uh, but we are coming to the end of the chapter this morning. And so Israel is under the accusation of their God. This is a covenant law court case where God is like the prosecuting attorney explaining to Israel why it is that judgment has befallen them, which is in itself uh, its own kind of encouragement that if God is going to judge a people, he doesn't just say, because I feel like it, right? Because I don't like your faces (laughs) or something stupid like that. No, he says, these are the reasons I'm laying out your sins as the reason for judgment. The ones I warned you about back in Deuteronomy. The ones I promised that if you continued to pursue them and reject me, this is the result of people who, uh, in a sense, deprive themselves and rebel against the image of their Creator. And so the conclusion of chapter 22, verse 23, The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, son of Adam, son of the dirt, say to her, that is Jerusalem, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They've taken treasure and precious things. They've made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions, divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall, stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them and have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. You've probably heard and if you haven't, just I'm going to guess it's just not a surprise to you that depression and anxiety are on the rise among young people. When I say young, I mean like 13 to 25. So we would say, we'd say youth or teenagers to young adults. And those numbers, by the way, were going up well before the start of the pandemic. So there's a lot of, a lot of sort of opinions and takes you hear on this basically blames the pandemic, and certainly that all of that didn't help. But statisticians of mental health have noted that the trend upward with teenage and young adult depression and anxiety has been going up since about 2015. And from some of the reading I've done, plenty of psychologists and columnists have tried to take aim at what they think the cause is, and adults older than 25 are obviously not exempt from this as well. I've noticed more or less three common threads in the attempt to diagnose what is wrong. Number one, we don't know who to trust. Okay? Let me explain. Whether it's 
whether it's all the various news media saying all the various different things, or experts, right, in a number of fields who don't agree with each other, and you can kind of always find the expert you want to listen to, or preachers, preachers are not exempt from the confusion, politicians, someone, just some random person in our social media feed, there is a radical distrust of authorities and voices, I think it's safe to say, other than the voice of the self. That tends to be where authority in our culture settles. It's like the only voice you can trust is the voice inside yourself. And while at first that feels really empowering, right? No one can tell me what to do but me. To exist in a state of constant suspicion about all the voices around you is a very stressful very anxiety-inducing place to be. So I'd say we don't know who to trust. Number two, we don't know how to be at peace with ourselves. Our metric for goodness and virtue is often who can shout the loudest or win the emotional argument. In fact, I don't know if it's that the metric for goodness and virtue has changed or if we've just exchanged virtue totally for activism and tribalism. So, so all of us want to be at peace within ourselves, happy with ourselves, but that's hard to do when you get a good look at the evil and selfishness in your own heart. So we try to deal with that self-dissatisfaction, some with being on the right team, or, or the phrase often you hear today is the right side of history. That's the activism and the tribalism. But even in that, there's a constant need to prove yourself. It's why our age is marked by what's been called expressive individualism. We read about it when we did that book study on the the Carl Truman book. Expressive individualism is the constant need to engage yourself in the public performance of desires and impulses. It's a need to be heard and affirmed. So not, not just heard and recognized, but affirmed constantly and repeatedly and continually. Okay? So, and I'm almost done with this little introduction. We don't know who to trust. We don't know how to be at peace with ourselves. And we don't certainly trust those in charge. And being distrustful of political leadership is about as old as trees. (laughs) It's not new. But what we have today is, is, I think, different. It is a radical distrust and suspicion of authority itself. Any authority. Leaving us with the conclusion, again, that the only person I can really trust is me. Finally, we don't, I think, maybe a fourth reason is it's hard to trust our neighbors. Whether it's because we've watched too many episodes of Investigation Discovery that tell us that the mild-mannered guy next door is actually a serial killer who's going to bury you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, God be praised. But some of you do, and it's why you won't talk to your neighbors. (laughs) There is great insecurity in not knowing your neighbors. Even if you favor being like a doomsday prepper and you have a lot of supplies for the day everything collapses, if you can't trust your neighbors, you could lose it all overnight. So, we don't know who to trust. We don't know how to be at peace with ourselves. We don't know how to be okay. We certainly don't trust those in charge. And often we don't know our neighbors. I think you can actually connect all four of those problems with our text today. What I mean is that I think you can connect all four of those problems to three out of the four, the ancient offices in Israel, and then number four, everybody else. Okay, 
So it was known in Israel that there were men you could trust. There were words you could trust. And those words came from the lips of guys called the prophets. And when the prophets started talking, you could bank on what they said. Because they spoke for God. You could actually be at peace within yourself in ancient Israel because you could be forgiven. You could confess sin and you could receive forgiveness and you could then, if necessary, make restitution because you had priests who could make a sacrifice on your behalf by God's command and absolve you, really and truly absolve you. You could trust your leaders because they were God's appointed kings They had copies of the law, whole copies of Deuteronomy, that they were supposed to handwrite themselves. Did you know that? Every new Israelite king was supposed to handwrite Deuteronomy. We have no indication that any of them ever did it. But they were commanded to do it. So so ideally, you had kings who had their own handwritten copy of the law. They tore down the idols. And they loved God's people like shepherds love their sheep. Only they didn't, right? We know how that went. And neighbors. That was the fourth category. Neighbors. Well, neighbors were the ones that were called to care for each other within the, within the uh, nation of Israel. What I'm trying to do is to give you a sense of the scandal in our text this morning. What we learn is that corruption and evil has spread through all, uh, you might say, classes of the chosen people in Jerusalem. The kings are murderers, the priests can't be trusted, the prophets are liars, and the neighbors are evil. The Lord starts with a picture of this as talking about uncleanness in the land in verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The cause of this uncleanness is the sin of the people in Jerusalem. As you read, you get a sense nobody's exempt from this. The three big offices are included. The, the, the priests, the princes, and the prophets. That's the order. It begins with, uh, well, the prophets get a, get, a, get a word in 25. And then verse 26 begins the priests, followed by the princes. Um, you could also say the kings. And the prophets. And then in verse 29, the Lord condemns the common people as well. So three central offices in the land are condemned along with everybody else. This would be like God addressing an oracle of judgment to America, and he calls out the sins of Congress, the White House, the Supreme Court, and the citizenry. It's actually not the best analogy. Probably better to say uh, elected officials. Maybe experts who think they are priests on morality and goodness, um, and uh, and maybe corporate corporate uh, executive experts, and then and then everyone else. Um, John Calvin famously said, "When God desires to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers." When God desires to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. In our day, we get a sense of what Calvin's talking about if our I mean, I was going to say in Israel's day, we get a sense if our own day wasn't example enough. So I want to start by talking a bit about this. The, the total failure and, and corruption within the three main offices in Israel. So go to verse 26. Her priests have done violence to my law 
and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. The priests were then lying about something God had told them to talk about, namely the distinction between what is common and what is holy. Now, there is a kind of movement today to simply call everything holy or everything spiritual, and in some sense that is understandable. It's a response to uh, probably over-scrupulous ritualism uh, that, that, that seeks to really invest uh, um, holiness in things that God hasn't set apart. But when God calls something special, think about it this way. When God calls something special or sets it apart, it's a sin to call it common or ordinary or uh, maybe, maybe irrelevant. Like it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. What the priests were failing to do was to make distinctions. R.C. Sproul famously said, the, the main duty of a theologian is that of making distinctions. Okay? Which, which sounds weird. Like, what is making distinctions? Well, it's because usually the worst kind of heresies hide behind a general broadness that addresses nothing. Okay? And we read in verse 26 that the priests have done violence because they've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Such that, how, how, do you, how are you going to know what God has called clean and unclean? How are you going to know what God has called good and sinful if everything is leveled and I think of our own day where everything is re- reduced to a matter, of, a matter of choice or personal preference. And so one of the responsibilities then that falls on God's people is to continue to make the distinctions wherever God has made them. It is why, I mean, think about it this way. It's why we take some, thing, some time to prepare the Lord's Supper, right? So you've got things like this little, this little plate that holds all the little cups. And this top, which is nice and shiny and and pretty, and it's got a cross on top of it. And then you have this stuff, which, although it kind of looks like something from Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, is really pretty and sort of gives you a a, a sense of um, uh, oldness or certainly set-apartness, right? Nothing else uh, up here looks like that. Or even something like, you know, this, this scarf or these preaching robes. It's not because... These things, it's not because this tray and this pitcher and this little scarf thing makes God's ordinances and sacraments special. It doesn't. The robe doesn't make me special. It doesn't make the sermon more compelling or sound. Uh, putting, uh, using these items here uh, doesn't make the Lord's Supper better than all that Jesus promises it is for you. It is rather because God has made these things special. God has set apart preaching. God has set apart the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we want to just figure out ways of acknowledging that and helping ourselves to remember it. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, when we bless this this, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing or a participation in the blood of Christ. And when we break this bread, are we not sharing or participating in the body of Christ? That sounds like it's really important. And we can debate about what it means to come to the table. Christians have, by the way. In what sense is Christ present in the supper and so on. What's not up for debate is that He is present when He serves us. That's not up for debate. 
And we don't get to make this meeting with Jesus optional in the Christian life. When God calls us to gather together and tells our fellowship, tells us in our fellowship that we are the set-apart body of Christ purchased with His own blood, that is not an optional part of our life together. Can such things be taken too far? Of course. Dead ritualism was a major concern and condemnation of almost every prophet. And so, if, if we're taking, I mean, just for an example, if we're taking the Lord's Supper together and a bit of wine splashes onto the carpet, I'm not going to panic because Jesus hasn't commanded me to care about that. But what God has set apart and called us to practice, let us not call optional or ordinary. And so God's given to us to make distinctions between what He says and what He calls good and holy and set apart and what is not. Next, the princes. So we go from priests to princes. Verse 27, Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. There's a principle in life and in leadership that I want all of you to know. It is that in God's world, authority flows to those who take responsibility. Authority flows to those who take responsibility. Not to those who demand authority by way of, uh, you know, whatever. uh, but, But to those who take responsibility. Position doesn't grant an exemption from responsibility. So if somebody holds a title or a position... They don't get exempted from responsibilities. In fact, those things always increase responsibilities. And so we have princes of Israel that are given this charge from God that are responsible to shepherd the people faithfully. A second principle is if you have authority, you will probably be tempted to misuse it. That's our flesh. The modern solution to this problem, as far as I can tell, is to despise all authorities. Because we have, for so long, suffered under ungodly rule and ungodly leadership, we have forgotten what it would be like to have good ones. Our postmodern default has always been to despise and destroy all authority. In part because a people who refuse to be ruled by God tend to instead be ruled by something else. They tend to be enslaved by panic or fear or hatred. Or in many cases, um, they can be enslaved to a different kind of idolatry like uh, sex, money, addiction. But hatred of authority is a serious thing. And when pointing out the sins of authority, I'm not inviting you to be a despiser of authority. Because it's very common and popular today to hate our fathers, to hate our church fathers, to hate our founding fathers, to hate our familial fathers. Some of that hatred comes from unfaithful exercises of authority, sinful exercises of authority. By way of example, I do not think feminism would have seen the light of day if pastors and husbands and fathers would have remained wise and godly in the exercise of their leadership and authority and responsibility through the years. Y'all are quiet on that one. I'm going I'm to pretend there was an amen there. 
Our answer is to completely delete authority when it is unfaithful. That's usually our answer. The authority is not doing so hot, so it just needs to go. That is usually not God's way. God's way is to insist upon correcting unfaithful authorities and only removing them when it becomes impossible for them to be corrected. That's what we see here. But this text doesn't mention fathers. In fact, we're right now focusing on princes, the rulers, and and hatred of political rulers. It was a related point, I think, but I want to get back to the focus. Hatred of political rulers has become something like that's almost part of American identity today. And I think in part it's because we've just forgotten what it's like to have godly rulers. So like, I mean, have you, have you, ever, have you ever walked outside and enjoyed the beauty of the morning and looked out on your, your backyard or, or whatever space God has given you and thought, I am so blessed to be living under the hand of godly, competent, qualified leaders. No, you haven't. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, maybe if you're older than me, you have. But, but I haven't. Uh, but, you know, have you ever walked out and just, just, just gloried in the, man, it is so good to live under godly, wise, qualified rulers. They make sure I'm safe, that men aren't going to come take my property or hurt my family. They make sure that I'm going to prosper. I'm so thankful for them. <laughs> Proverbs 29.2, I think, is instructive here. If we Got it on there somewhere? Yeah, there it is. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Yeah. One of the most painful curses on a land that a people can be given to endure is the burden of ungodly, foolish, unqualified rulers. Now, we should long for godly, Jesus-loving rulers in our land because we've already talked about it, we've already prayed about it, we love our neighbors. Right? I want my neighbors to be under the leadership of godly people. I love my neighbor. I want him to prosper under the blessing of godly, competent, qualified rulers. So I will continue to pray that the rulers of our land kiss the Son, that is, love the Lord Jesus, lest they, the rulers, crush people with misery and find themselves answering to God on the last day for unfaithfulness in their office. There's a problem with the priests. There's a problem with the rulers. There's also a problem with the prophets. Verse 28. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, them being the rulers, seeing false visions, divining lies for them, saying, I mean, and I said, I did it earlier, thus says the Lord God. You can mock it a bit. When the Lord has not spoken. What we see here is that the prophets were in league with the princes. So we just established the princes were liars and murderers. And the prophets who were supposed to be speaking for God were covering for them and saying, God's good with it. It's fine. Claiming to speak for God. Listen, and honestly, if you get one thing out of the sermon today, if you write one thing down in your notes, go ahead and make it this one. Speaking for God when He hasn't spoken is more risky than smoking a cigarette while taking a gasoline shower. Alright? Speaking for God when he hasn't spoken, is more risky than smoking a cigarette while taking a gasoline shower. That's a Brian Rhodes original. I didn't steal that from anyone. And you're like, I can tell. It's weird. (laughs) When you claim to speak for God, listen. When you say, God told me X, or God is telling you Y, 
you know, God is telling me this, God is telling you that, you'd better make certain you're right. If someone says God has told me X, you know, whatever, God has told me X, I'm going to ask for chapter and verse. And if you have to go get on your Bible app to look it up, that's absolutely allowed, I'll wait. It's not because I just don't like sentences that start with God told me. It is that I don't want you calling down a curse on yourself by claiming to put words on God's lips. It's a very serious thing. And so the three offices here are exposed for all their corruption. The prophets are failing. The princes are failing. The priests are failing. But I did tell you there was one more. Verse 30. uh, Excuse me, verse 29. The people of the land have practiced extortion, committed robbery, oppressed the poor and needy, have extorted from the sojourner without justice. There's a principle here that I want you to know, and that is that oppression of the poor is itself robbery and theft. That is, mistreating them, mistreating the poor and needy, depriving them is a kind of theft. Our larger catechism speaks to this, actually. A question 142, which deals with violations of the Eighth Commandment. Okay, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Eighth Commandment, eighth commandment is you shall not steal. All right? Now, here's part of the answer. It's, it's a rather long answer. That's why it's called the larger catechism, because all the answers are really, really big. But here's the bit that I want you to pay attention to. Oppression, extortion, all other unjust ways of taking from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves, right? in, in that same context, enriching ourselves at the expense of our neighbor, uh, to the hurt of our neighbor, to the harm of our neighbor. Now, some people hear something like this, and they say, well, that, like, I'm not a Bible scholar, and I'm not a political science major, but that kind of sounds like Marxism, <laughs> where like, I owe my money or possessions to someone less fortunate than me, and I have a duty to surrender my stuff, so that my neighbor can get a piece of what I've got. That is a misunderstanding of our catechism and lots of texts like this one in the Bible. Here our catechism does seem to say that to contribute to oppression, to take part in oppression by extorting or mistreating the poor or constantly just ignoring them is a kind of theft, but not for the reasons the Marxists think it is. You see, Marxism sees the whole world, yes, I'm going to get a little bit political this morning. Marxism sees the whole world and all of its resources as a big pie, okay? Big pie. And that means if I get a big piece, all of my neighbors necessarily get a little itty-bitty piece. That is not how God's world works. In God's world, the pie gets bigger. The pie grows. But notice something else. The Lord Almighty saved this sin for His people. Not for the princes, not for the prophets, not for the priests. The problem, according to Ezekiel, is not that the princes were failing to effectively redistribute Israel's prosperity through taxation. The problem was that individual citizens were ignoring the poor and the needy. This makes sense because God has given, in fact, the ministry of welfare to the needy to individuals and families and churches, not to the state. It's a radical thing to say today. But the reality is, the reason why this comes up very often in prophetic literature is because if people 
Um, let me put it this way. If people become easy to ignore, it's very likely they will be ignored. That's, that's what this is getting at in mistreatment of the poor and needy. The people of the land have failed to take care of the needy in their land. They have instead oppressed them. Oppression of the poor comes up as a frequent sin precisely because it is easy for a community of people to do. It would be like, and this is a really weird metaphor, just kind of stick with me because I made it up on the spot. It would be like if you were in a classroom and you were you know, young and, and learning and maybe there's a kid in your class who can't really talk, and he has really short arms, <laughs> so he can't get the teacher's attention. And it would be really easy to ignore him. It doesn't cost you anything, because it's really easy to forget, to overlook. What ends up happening in virtually all human societies in history is that people who cannot as easily get the attention of those who are governing, of those who are ruling, end up getting mistreated because who's going to notice? Who's going to care? God says that His people then are given a mandate to say, we do. Okay? That's what Christians do. When the whole world says, or, or parts of the world or whomever, says, well, it, it, is, it doesn't cost us anything to ignore the needs of this person because this person has no real ability to do anything to us if we ignore them. And we say we do. We notice we are the ones who care. And God is not okay with it, by the way. And while it might cost you nothing because you don't have to answer to a nobody, you will one day answer to the Almighty for how you treated the nobodies around you. And so what is... What is God's answer? After this indictment of the three main offices and the people as a whole, for the, the three main offices are basically advancing misery and bloodshed and injustice and uh, confusion. And the people, meanwhile, are not caring or oppressing the poor and needy in their midst. What does the Lord say? Verse 30. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land. You remember back, in the, back at the start of our text, we started with the land. Now he's saying, stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. God, through Ezekiel, gives us this picture as though the Lord is searching through all of the city, looking for someone who can stand in the breach. So what, what's the breach? Well, God has not been ashamed. God has not been uh, slow of, of words to describe His own wrath as a coming fire against the sin and rebellion and all of the bad stuff you've just heard talked about in these verses this morning. And it's like uh, Jerusalem surrounded by walls. Well, there's a break in the wall and that's where the attack is coming. It's going to go right through, the, right through that hole in the wall and hit the people. And he's saying, I, I can't find anyone to stand in that gap between my wrath and the sinful people behind him that they justly deserve. I cannot find a righteous man. God cannot find a defender in all of Israel who can stand between him and his people. And so his people are exposed to all of the things you are exposed to. 
to the oppression of evil men, to the ongoing sin of individuals within a community, to all of the misery that results from both of those things, to the, to the misery that results from priests who won't make distinctions between good and evil, to the misery that results from prophets who claim to speak for God and make up nonsense, to princes and kings and rulers who shed blood and are, held unaccountable, are not held accountable. In a city surrounded by prophets they couldn't trust, by priests that couldn't forgive sin, because what's that? By princes who carelessly spilled blood and did not defend the innocent. And by a society of men and women who carelessly neglected and oppressed the poor. In that kind of world, I mean, that sounds like an extremely dangerous place to live, does it not? An exceedingly dangerous place to live. Life is threatened and it's not valued. And so in this kind of world where there's danger on every side, fear and terror and uncertainty because of sin and selfishness, the Lord says, is there not one man I can find who will stand in the breach, stand in the gap, stop the coming judgment while my people are wrecked by bloodshed and oppression and probably no small amount of fear and anxiety and depression? Ezekiel is saying, no, there is no man. And so, this discordant note holds until the Son of God comes, who is the man who stands in the breach between God and His wrath and a rebellious people. Jesus Christ is the priest who actually will forgive our sins because He is the one who has set us apart and called us clean. We can never say, oh, God doesn't care about what's you know, holy or common. God doesn't care about what's clean and unclean. Why? Because He's pronounced you clean, Christian. He's set you apart. He's declared you to be clean. So you are no longer threatened, not just by the wrath of God, but by the guilt that would afflict you for the unforgiven sin that would crush you the anxiety and depression that rightly should crush you if you are living in a state of unforgiven sin. Because you are never okay with you. But because of Jesus Christ, you can actually be at peace and at rest from the anxiety that would destroy you because your God and your Maker has pronounced you clean and forgiven. He's also the King that you can trust because He's not a King who rips His people apart. That's what the text says, doesn't it? I didn't write it down, but let me find it. Her princes in her midst, verse 27, are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives. Jesus is a king. Jesus is our king and prince. Not a king who tears his people apart, but a king who was torn apart for them. Who is today putting all of his enemies under his feet. Either by a bowed knee with forgiveness, or a last breath and judgment. He is the prophet that we can trust because He is constantly revealing to us, telling us the, by, uh, the, the, the will of God for our salvation. In His Word, illuminated by His Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is constantly giving us the way of God by His Word and His Spirit. The prophets of Ezekiel's day were liars and they were covering for liars. The reason 
we are people of the Word is because we worship a God who has spoken and He doesn't lie. So, so even though we encounter no small amount of difficulty trusting, all the, trusting voices that we hear today, which one do I trust? Which one do I listen to? There is a prophetic voice by the Word and Spirit of Jesus Christ that you can lean on as never lying and forever trustworthy. This is the reason we're a people of God, a people of the book, because our God doesn't lie. Is that not wonderful? Finally, He is the defender of the poor and needy. We've sang about it before. Hope of the poor, Psalm 9. He is the defender of the poor and needy because He was made poor and needy so that we could watch God be ignored and despised and crucified. But he is building a new world. He's building a new world where there actually are words that can be trusted. Where the the, the sins can actually be forgiven. Where rulers will bow the knee and pursue justice uh, justice and truth. This is the world that Jesus is building. And where neighbors will care for each other. And the good news, dear saints, is that he's already started. He's already started. He's building a kingdom. He's using His people called the church to spread His rule and reign throughout this world. In so doing, we will find ourselves under the watchful care of a shepherd king, prophet, and priest who means to banish our anxiety and fear when we rest in Him. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.